This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org. You're listening to audio from one of our third Thursday webinars on Parkinson's research. In these webinars, expert panelists and people with Parkinson's discuss aspects of the disease and the foundation's work to speed medical breakthroughs. Learn more about the third Thursday webinars at michaeljfox.org webinars. Thanks for listening. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for today's Third Thursday's webinar, Medical Marijuana and Alternative Therapies. I'm Dr. Sonia Mather, a family physician, a Parkinson's patient for over 20 years now, and co-chair of the Michael J. Fox Foundation Patient Council. I also have the pleasure of being your moderator today. We will be covering topics today that are of really great interest to our community and create a lot of buzz, and that's the latest on medical marijuana and Parkinson's disease, as well as other alternative therapies, such as acupuncture and supplements, Let's meet our panelists. Matt Akerman's friend is calling from California. Matt was diagnosed with Parkinson's in 2010 and is a really vocal and, and wonderful member of our patient council. Thank you for joining us, Matt. Thank you for having me. And also with us is Dr. Susan Fox. Dr. Fox is director of the Division of Neurology, actually quite near me at the University of Toronto. She's researching cannabis oil for pain and Parkinson's disease. So glad you're here with us, Dr. Fox. Thank you for inviting me. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Also with us today is Dr. Benzie Kruger. He's a professor in the Department of Neurology at the University of Colorado. He's interested in the non-motor symptoms of Parkinson's, such as fatigue and cognitive impairment, and complementary therapies. Thank you for calling in, Dr. Kruger. Thank you. And last, we'll welcome Dr. Helen Mabretsky, a professor of psychiatry at UCLA and a geriatric psychiatrist. She studies mind-body treatments such as yoga and tai chi for mood and cognitive disorders. Really happy to have you here with us today, Dr. Lebeski. Thank you very much. So welcome, everyone. So let's, you know, not hesitate and get started. Let's start with defining what we're talking about today. In this webinar, as I mentioned, we're discussing use of medical marijuana and other alternative therapies in the management of Parkinson's disease. Um, Dr. Kluger, could you perhaps start the discussion off for us by explaining what is meant by complementary therapies and how that sort of fits into the practice of integrative medicine? Uh, sure. So complementary and alternative medicine, uh, we kind of moved to the term complementary to uh, emphasize that these are things that should be done alongside with or in addition to other treatments, but it's basically, in a nutshell, anything that your regular doctor would not prescribe for you or order for you. So that could include things ranging from uh, diet, uh, certain exercises outside of uh, traditional physical therapy, um, supplements, herbs. Uh, We'll talk about medical marijuana today, which would definitely fall under that heading. Um, And yeah, and there's, I think, an increasing interest in that in our country, particularly over the last uh, couple decades, uh, that people are recognizing that there may be something there, although um, in a lot of cases, as I'm sure we'll discuss today too, the evidence may be somewhat limited. Right. And I think you're right, Dr. Kluger. I think that this sort of team approach and and looking at, at all sorts of treatments that might be available for patients really helps improve quality of life. We're going to talk about the first complementary tip treatment, as you mentioned, the discussion about medical marijuana. Matt, I'm sure you'd agree that the use of cannabis to help control a variety of Parkinson's symptoms is really of great interest to lots of people in our community, and there's a ton of sort of anecdotal reports of the success and benefits, lots of videos, lots of chat in the forums. Before we get into how it may be an alternative therapy in Parkinson's care, at which point I really will circle back to you, Matt, to get your personal take, because I'm interested in hearing that. 
I'd like to start off with what we know from a scientific perspective. So Dr. Fox, many of our listeners have heard that there are different types of marijuana. When we refer to medical marijuana, so what are the active compounds that we are interested in? Yes, this is obviously a very important point that cannabis is uh, a mixture of different compounds and people who smoke or inhale cannabis, they're having uh, a variety of, of constituents um, that they're ingesting um, and we don't perhaps know all of the different types. The ones that most people have heard of are THC, which is the so-called psychoactive component that can cause the sort of the psychosis or the high feeling. Um, the other common one is called CBD, which may have other properties. Um, but cannabis, the herbal cannabis, contains probably over 100 pharmacological um, constituents. Um, there are other types of cannabis um, that have been investigated um, in Parkinson's using um, pharmacological grade or very potent cannabis uh, products and these are called nabilone and dronabinol and these are drugs that have been licensed by agencies for specific indications so this is a very different type of of cannabis but it still comes under the 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 thought the use of cannabis in parkinson's disease obviously what we're probably focusing on more today is the the sort of herbal um uh, properties of of cannabis um then there are other compounds that are now available com cannabis type oils which are a mixture often of thc and cbd um, so there's a whole variety of, of types of cannabis out there and I think sometimes mm -hmm. this can be overwhelming to people when they, they try and approach the, the field to know what they're using, what they're taking, what they're being, what, what they're, what they're uh, potentially um, trying as to whether it's going to have a benefit or not. So when a patient goes in for a medical marijuana, um, to, to be prescribed medical marijuana, it could be any of these compounds that are that are mm -hmm. found in the medication that will be pre prescribed. Yes, so so um, it it will be it'll depend on um, where they're being where they're going to get this from. Um, the herbal types of cannabis are used as well as 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 medical marijuana. Um, but as I said, there are these pharmacological grade tablets that that are prescribed for other indications that would also come under that category. But I think the general consensus use of the term medical marijuana really is is for the the prescribed herbal um, properties preparations of of cannabis. But we're not really sure what the relevant constituents of THC versus CBD may be in these um, so-called, um, in, in the medical marijuana um, oh. compounds. Okay, great. Um, Dr. Kluger, I read that um, all living animals, I guess with the exception of insects, they said, have receptors for cannabinoids. In someone with PD, how is marijuana hypothesized to work? Do we know that yet? Um, yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So uh, I guess to start with the first part of your comment or, or question, is that we now know there is something called the endocannabinoid system. Um, so in other animals um, and in people, uh, there are receptors in the brain that respond to chemicals that resemble chemicals found in the cannabis plant, um, what are called endocannabinoids. And this is pretty similar actually to, uh, some people may be aware of something called endorphins. Uh, which is a pain system inside the brain and body that responds to 
compounds that are similar to opiates or morphine. Um, so it's a pretty analogous process in the brain. Uh, one of the things that's, I think, uh, intriguing about it and why there's been a lot of interest for it for Parkinson's disease is that the highest concentration of these receptors is in the basal ganglia um, and also in the cerebellum. So there's a very high concentration of these uh, receptors in areas that are important for movement and that are involved in Parkinson's disease. So that's something that's intriguing. Um, in Animal models, you know, it's hard to tell exactly, as, uh, as Dr. Fox had mentioned, there are now known to be over 100 different uh, cannabinoids uh, with varying effects, and so it's hard to know um, how such a complex mix would actually work. Um, one of the things that I often do when I give talks on, on marijuana is I'll, I'll put out, pull up a slide of Cheech and Chong and ask people if uh, people on marijuana tend to move faster or slower. Uh, and, and the answer is typically slower, and, and I think what surprises a lot of people is that if you directly stimulate cannabinoid receptors, uh, that you actually decrease dopamine. Um, and there have mm -hmm. been animal models where cannabinoids uh, have been used, cannabinoid agonists, the things that stimulate those receptors, uh, to actually mimic Parkinsonism and to slow down movement. Um, so that being said, um, there are also cannabinoids that block those receptors. There are cannabinoids that are what are called partial agonists, so that they may modulate those receptors. Um, so it's not an all or an none thing. And you could imagine that in some circumstances, such as dyskinesias, uh, that turning down dopamine could be a good thing. Um, you know, so that's uh, you know kind of a long-winded way of saying is that there that it's complicated, um, that it's not. I don't think it's going to be so simple that cannabinoids or all cannabinoids will be the answer to all problems. But I think it's possible. Uh, that certain cannabinoids or certain mixes of cannabinoids may be helpful for both uh, too much movement by potentially turning up the system and by too little movement, potentially by turning it down. Um, the other thing that I'll add, which has been intriguing and is studied in animals, but we certainly don't know in people, is whether or not uh, cannabinoids could potentially be neuroprotective. And so outside of their effects on movement, uh, there have been uh, some studies showing that they may uh, reduce inflammation in certain parts of the brain, that they may have antioxidant properties, that they may calm down activated microglia. And so that's another area that's uh, very hot for animal research. Um, there's actually one study right now looking at that in Huntington's disease. We don't have results for that, but I think that's something that um, is being talked about and that we may hear more about in the future. That's really interesting. It's such a myriad of, of potential action points for for this, uh, this herb. It's, it's really quite intriguing. How, where does CBD fall into this picture, Dr. Kruger, when you were talking about whether it blocks or, or um, activates receptors? Um, right. Yeah, so CBD is, uh, is a tricky one. Um, so THC, which was mentioned, uh, definitely does have some more direct CB1 agonist effects. Um, CBD, um, at least last I looked, I don't think it's entirely known how CBD works, uh, but it may also work through some, in, in the endocannabinoid system, there's, you know, I talk about CB1 and CB2, but there's a lot of other uh, cannabinoid receptors um, out there. And so that it looks like CBD may work through some of these other receptors and may also have effects through anti-inflammation and, you know, I guess the bottom line is is that we don't entirely know how uh, CBD works. That's a lot of Parkinson's research <laughs> anyway. Yep. 
Right. Um, Dr. Fox, Dr. Kruger mentioned uh, uh, an ongoing study in Huntington's disease. Do you know what some of the ongoing studies are in Parkinson's that are close to completion that physicians are sort of waiting to see the results from? Right. Um, I mean, there are some clinical studies um, that are beginning or, or in progress looking at um, cannabis products for some of the symptoms of Parkinson's. So, for example, we're doing a study looking at combinations of CBD oil, uh, combinations of CBD THC oil, cannabis oil, for patients with pain for Parkinson's. So we haven't really touched on some of the non-motor issues that, that cannabis mm -hmm. products may help Parkinson patients. We've heard already about some of the motor, but some of the non-motor may be also of um, potential targets for cannabis products. So this is a, a trial that we're doing here in Toronto. And we're really starting off just trying to find out what the best combination of THC, CBD is in a patient with pain and Parkinson's to determine the safety and the tolerability um, and then the potential dose to then take into a uh, double-blind randomized phase 2A trial. So this is sort of the first stage of investigating that. There are other um, centers I know that are either doing or planning um, studies to look at cannabis products in pain. There's a, there's a, cent there's a group in the UK that I know are interested in doing this. And their plan, I believe, is to use the one of the other preparations that's available clinically, which is the spray, the nabiximal um, spray preparation of cannabis that has, has been licensed in several countries around the world for use in uh, spasticity related to multiple sclerosis. And so they're going to use mm -hmm. that as a type of cannabis product for um, Parkinson's disease pain. There are preclinical studies, um, I know, looking at other areas of the cannabis um, pharmacology. You, you, we already mentioned um, the, 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 the mechanism of action of CBD, which is very complex, and it may work through non, so-called non-CBD receptors, so may target some of the other enzymes that are involved in cannabis metabolism as a, as a way of manipulating the cannabis system. And I know there are preclinical studies looking at uh, models of Parkinson's to see if targeting some of these enzyme systems may be a better way of modulating the cannabis system to alleviate some of the motor symptoms of Parkinson's. So these are ongoing. Um, so um, I guess watch this space to see how things develop in the future. Yeah, very, very exciting times, actually. For this, for this area. But Dr. Fox, you actually made a good point um, about the non-motor symptoms. So I guess in general, what are the symptoms that have been shown to be potentially targeted by, by cannabis in terms of improvement, motor and non-motor? Um, well, I guess um, so far, most of the focus has been on the motor symptoms of Parkinson's, so tremor, you heard about levodopa-induced dyskinesia, where there have been a couple of trials done. Um, so far, the evidence is not that strong for alleviating the motor symptoms. And the American Academy of Neurology guidelines published in 2014, in fact, said that there were currently no, uh, there's no evidence for treating tremor or dyskinesia with um, the currently available cannabis products. I think my feeling is that it's the non-motor symptoms that 
probably are going to be the most um, likely to perhaps be um, helped by cannabis products, as I mentioned already, pain. But the other one may be sleep. Um, and so mm -hmm. there are obviously this is probably the area that these are the more interesting focus, I think, now with 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 um, uh, research in the field of, of cannabis products. Right. Dr. Lovetsky, is there, are there any ongoing studies on the effect of marijuana on cognition or mood in Parkinson's? I know that's an area of your interest. I'm sure some efforts are ongoing, and uh, certainly patients are using it for that reason, for anxiety, depression, insomnia commonly, and um, I'm not aware of any ongoing uh, trials at the moment. Is there one type of formulation that works better for anxiety and depression? I've heard that there might be some uh -huh. potential benefit. CBD oil uh, routinely, you know, is sold for that reason, and uh, some of the providers label it as for anxiety or insomnia or pain. Okay. <clears throat> so um, CBD oil would be helpful. But, you know, patients tend to use um, all sorts of vari a variety of preparations, with THC included. Right. And Dr. Kruger, are there any other studies that are exciting to you that are coming down the pipeline that you wanted to mention? Um, I, I could mention there, there is one large study, I'm not uh, directly involved with that, at Colorado uh, that's using CBD for tremor. Um, and one, one of the things I guess I would add uh, to what Dr. Fox had to say um, is that I, I would consider that the trials that have been done to date are, are more inconclusive than negative, um, that we're not really sure of what the right cannabinoid or dose or or mode, so it, it's still very early days. Uh, one of the two of the things that are actually different about the CBD trial that's ongoing here is one is that they're using a much higher dose than had been done in prior trials. Um, as mm -hmm. people you may not be aware of is, is CBD was recently FDA approved for epilepsy, uh, for certain certain type mm -hmm. of epilepsy, and and the doses used are a lot higher than would typically be used just uh, getting product uh, from a dispensary. So this one is using a higher dose. Another thing that was a limitation of prior studies is that they tended to be pretty short term and they had a small number of people. So it may be that right. there was a small effect, but it was missed because uh, of the study design. Um, so I am looking forward to see what that study shows. Uh, the other thing that I think is important about that study and is important to be aware of is that uh, they're also doing a very careful job to look at um, side effects, uh, particularly uh, cognitive side effects or other side effects, and that's something that I think people need to be aware of if they're considering using cannabinoids is that, um, at least in prior trials, there have been um, some problems with uh, low blood pressure, dizziness, balance. Um, there is a potential that it could affect thinking and memory, that it could exacerbate apathy. Uh, there is some evidence that at least certain forms of cannabinoids, uh, you know, potentially could even heighten or worsen depression. Um, so I think people need to be uh, cautious, even though it's a natural product. Does that mean that it's without side effects? That's absolutely correct. I think you, anything you take into your system has potential side effects, and you have to be careful of that. But, you know, Dr. Kruger, I'm wondering, there's so many anecdotal reports in the community um, about the benefits of cannabis. And I think people are sort of also, you mentioned sample size and, and duration of studies, study design, as well as maybe dosage, is sort of been... Um, uh, slowing down, getting uh, conclusive results one way or another. Are there other barriers to research into these compounds? Why is it taking so long 
sort of figure out if this can be proven on a scientific basis? Sure. Well, uh, one, one thing which I think uh, may be part of this webinar, and I know Michael J. Fox Foundation and Parkinson's Foundation and others have been um, uh, arguing for this, and there was a recently a, um, a comment period for the FDA, um, is that there have been uh, legal barriers uh, to research. And uh, just to give you uh, an idea about that, so for the CBD study done at Colorado, um, even though uh, cannabis is legal in the state of Colorado, it's still federally illegal. And so uh, the University of Colorado actually ended up building a, a new building without any federal dollars for any of the bricks uh, in order to do some of the research. And so uh, so even in a state where you think it might be fairly easy to do this research, it, it's not. And there's a lot of uh, barriers and hoops and things that uh, make it difficult um, to to get things things off the ground, so both legal and regulatory and, and logistical are are there. Um, you know, it's also been difficult, and this is something that comes up uh, across the board for complementary alternative medicine. Uh, but trying to determine uh, how to study it best, um, you know, so there's arguments mm -hmm. that can be made, uh, particularly from a scientific perspective, for using very pure uh, purified compounds, so just pure CBD and pure THC, but I think a lot of people feel that the plant-based compounds that are dirtier may actually have a, a greater clinical effect. Um, but if you're using plant-based compounds, uh, whether it's cannabis or, or other um, complementary medicines, uh, then you run into the question of quality control and dose and things like that. And, and so I right. think in general, cannabis is hampered by a lot of the same uh, problems that other complementary medicines are. Um, in terms of study design. And, and the last thing is uh, sponsorship, um, that there are a few companies now, uh, Sativex and Epidiolex and others, that have um, pharmaceutical-grade compounds they can sell. Uh, but if you're more interested in the plant-based compound or if you're interested in things that don't have a pharmacological or pharmaceutical product, um, it can be difficult to get uh, or find funding to do the research. So there's a, a number of barriers to getting this off the ground. Right. And Dr. Fox, being in Canada where it's legal, um, do you find similar barriers in terms of study design and uh, getting the, the right product, or is it a little bit different here? No, I would, I would e echo exactly what Dr. Kluger just said, that in fact, since the legalization of personal use in Ontario Canada, and in Canada, that um, in fact getting Health Canada which is the FDA equivalent approval to do clinical trials using cannabis products has actually been even harder. So we're um, this is one of the, the barriers that we're facing at the moment. Um, but I'm hoping that this will ease get ease through um, shortly. It's it's certainly making it a little bit challenging to do studies. Um, but I'd also echo what Dr. Kluger was saying about the the challenges of of the the type of cannabis that that we're investigating. Um, there are so many different varieties, dosing, methods of delivery, properties, et cetera, that it's not just one single drug. It's it's a multitude, and, and this is one of the big, big challenges with this uh, whole field. And um, I think this is what's uh, causing some difficulties and, and making it difficult to come to uh, conclusions and, and have a good evidence-based approach to dealing with um, medical marijuana, cannabis, for and give answers to patients. I still think it's a very challenging field. Yeah, medical research is challenging, unfortunately. 
but uh, it's necessary to go through these these uh, these uh, processes for sure. So Matt, you and I know what a hot topic this is for our community, and you come from a state where cannabis is legalized, California. Um, so do you have any personal experience with this compound, and what did you notice? I do, and uh, first I would start by saying thank you to all the researchers and medical professionals on this call that are helping me understand the scientific part of it because I'm not at all scientific. Um, but I never smoked dope, you know, as a kid, um, and you know, it was it was kind of the wild west, and you know, I, I'd heard it talked about as to easing pain, and back when it was illegal. People got medical marijuana cards in California, and they could go to specially licensed dispensaries that were very tightly controlled. And I never thought I'd have to deal with this, so I just kind of ignored it. Then I got Parkinson's, and I thought, well, I may as well try some of everything. And so one of the themes that I know we'll touch on later is all the other things I've done as well. But with regard to marijuana and cannabinoid and all that, and I think it's important to highlight for everybody that when we refer to marijuana, we're talking about typically the natural state um, of of the plant, the organic, homegrown kind of, or even commercially grown, but it includes the THC and the CBD. Um, so I started off by taking what was um, given to me by somebody who lived where they grew a lot of dope, and um, it was CBD oil. And this was when I was first diagnosed and I had a lot of pain. I had a, an unusual symptom, a lot of pain in my shoulder um, caused, I think, by me compensating for the effects of the Parkinson's on my right side. So um, I started taking it and I took it at night and it made me sleep better. It seemed to make me sleep better. And in the end, I'm going to acknowledge the fact that maybe it has something to do with faith. But in the end, I don't care what it is. If I feel better, yeah, that's a good thing. So I, I did that, and this was home distilled by a guy who was very professional and so forth, and he was set up to take advantage of the legality of it when it became legal. So I sort of graduated from that. I still stayed with the CBD at night, but I moved to a CBD oil that had been infused in coconut oil. A little bit easier to take, a little less caustic, you know, didn't taste terrible and whatnot. And it seemed to have the same effect. And and again, maybe it was the routine, but it but I felt better. Um, I've also tried edibles in a variety of forms, and I have a funny story to tell. One of them was gummies, and they were blue. They were blueberry. And uh, one day I left them in the car, and I didn't realize oh, yeah. what heat does gummies. So I went to I went to <laughs> eat it, and it wasn't any longer in solid state. It was kind of in this gooey state. Well, I dipped my finger in it because I really wanted to have some and I ended up putting it all over my beard. So I had a blue beard for a while, <laughs> you know, live and learn. Did it work? Yes. It seemed to have um, a positive effect. So what I've learned, what I believe I've learned in this is that um, there's a lot of confusing things on the packaging, very confusing. They have ratios on the package. They have total sur total package content they have per serving content, you know, and they, they express it in milligrams, they express it in ratios, very confusing. So I, for a while, I was hugely confused. And the at the dispensaries, they really couldn't help because these were more sort of um, recreational dispensaries and they, they really didn't have any right. knowledge. So I've learned by a process of um, live and learn 
that I have to be very careful because at one point I took some that was definitely put me over the top and I went to a movie and I thought that my legs had been chopped off. So this is, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) fortunately I didn't have to get up and walk or go to the bathroom or anything, but um, it, uh, it was just sort of, sort of wild, but, so I've tried it in a variety of states and fashions. And, and so another one of the challenges in going to these dispensaries, which I'll refer to as recreational dispensaries, um, is that they never have the same product twice. So, mm-hmm. you know, I go in and I say, I really like these. They were convenient. Um, they were easy. So one of the ones that I'm referring to is a very light. Um, it, my, the ratio that seems to work for me is something like a, a 10 to 1 or an 8 to 1. And that's eight parts of CBD to one part of um, THC. And and from an absolute dosage standpoint, it's something like 0.5 milligrams of THC. Now, I acknowledge all the things that right. the researchers have said about the, the variability and so forth and the lack of testability in some cases. Um, but that seems to work well for me. And, and the product that I found that was very convenient was a was like a tablet that was sort of mint flavored. And I could put it under my tongue and let it absorb through, you know, interlingually. Um, and that right. seemed to work pretty well. And it control, helps me control yeah. my tremor. All, all different types to take into consideration. You're right. I mean, Parkinson's disease affects us in so many unique ways. Everyone's different. Everyone's going to respond to medication differently. And I guess everyone will respond to marijuana or, or CBD or THC, whatever you end up taking, in a very different way. And I, I do want to talk about the formulations in a bit, Matt, because I think you're quite right. I think there is a lot of variability in what you get um, either recreationally um, particularly. But I just want to step back for a moment and ask uh, the clinicians on the call that even though we don't have any formal scientific studies yet to really back it up, in your own practice, do you are you recommending cannabinoids as, as part of your treatment for managing Parkinson's disease in, in certain patients? Dr. Kluger, maybe you can start with that. Yeah, I'd be happy to <clears throat> uh, share my approach. Um, yeah, in, in general, I would say that, um, you know, and I actually have a frequently asked questions uh, sheet that I have for medical marijuana. So in, in the state of Colorado, which is similar to other states in the U.S., I don't know how things work in Canada, uh, but in, in Colorado, at least, um, as a physician, I don't prescribe marijuana. I can uh, fill out paperwork that would allow somebody to get a license and then work with the dispensary. Um, so there's, uh, so it's not, you know, I think it, you know, in some ways it would be advantageous, you know, if we had things that were well tested and I can write a prescription and I knew exactly what people were getting, but that's not the case. Right. Um, so, so that's definitely one caveat, and it sounds like uh, Matt has run into that. Um, so, so the guidance I, I typically do, I'll, you know, we'll have a conversation and first is trying to understand uh, what specifically people are hoping to treat with cannabis. You know, it's not something that I would recommend, uh, you know, just for general use. So if people have a right. specific symptom and, and in general, the things I focus most on would be sleep, pain and, and anxiety, muscle spasms. Um, I tend to um, advise it less for straightforward motor symptoms, although I, I definitely have some patients who feel like it's been helpful for a tremor or dyskinesias or smoothing things out. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, kind of going through the information sheet I'll give to people um, includes a list of side effects, includes recommendations to start low and go up slowly, um, includes some general guidance for 
uh, what CBD and THC may be good for and what side effects they may both have. Um, and then generally recommend to try to stick with a single dispensary uh, because even what, and actually there's been studies showing this, that what's on the label is just as likely to be inaccurate as accurate. So so if you go to oh. one dispensary, you get stuck with 10 milligrams of CBD and go across the street to a different dispensary, uh, the effects may be totally different. Um, wow, so those, those are kind of the general guidelines that I will um, give to people. And, and kind of like, you know, I think your experience and, and Matt's experience is, um, yeah, it's kind of hit or miss. You know, I think the, time, the symptoms that are greater hits, you know, would certainly be things like pain, sleep, and anxiety, um, that motor symptoms I think are less reliably controlled. That's just been my uh, personal experience in, in, uh, from case series. Uh, but there's yeah definitely a, a lot of uh, research that still needs to be done to um, you know to back up both clinicians as well as uh, patients' impressions. Dr. Fox, do you have similar experience, or do you sort of address it similarly in your practice as well? Uh, yes, I would say so. Um, I I also I would not prescribe or recommend cannabis products at this point. People ask mm -hmm. me, I think, every single day, many times. Um, it's a com one of the commonest questions I get asked. I usually go through the issues, the um, particularly focusing on the side effects, because, again, I think this is so mm -hmm. important that even though it is a natural product, that there are significant side effects, particularly in people with Parkinson's who, who already have maybe low blood pressures or... Uh, sleepiness as a result of the disease itself, and we don't want to make these things mm -hmm. worse um, and cause significant side effects. So I, I have a, a conversation about the the lack of good evidence, but anecdotally, some people have had benefits, the side effects, and if people are still keen, I'd say, well, be very careful, start with a very low dose, um, and uh, I, but I, I certainly don't suggest or prescribe it at this point. And do we know about any of the long-term effects of marijuana in PD patients specifically or in general? Um, I, I, I don't think we do. Um, I mean, there are certainly concerns in, in other populations, teenagers, about uh, long-term cognitive issues. Um, other panel members could probably address that better than mm -hmm. I can. Um, I mean, I think long-term there may be possible concerns, but, but no one's, we don't really have that evidence, I think, to, to know conclusively. Dr. Lavretsky, do you want to comment on that? Yes, it's being studied intensively in older adults, and especially, and not just older adults, in adults, um, in terms of affecting cognition and driving abilities, and there's certainly indication that um, alertness and driving ability is impaired with the use of uh, marijuana. Um, there's not much research on the effect of CBD oil in terms of impairment uh, um, of driving abilities. Uh, but, but the information will be coming shortly. Uh, there's a, a retrospective study that studied cognitive decline in older adults in those who used uh, marijuana in uh, adolescence and adulthood, showing that there's a greater uh, likelihood of cognitive decline in those And so do you... Do you find it uh, useful in your practice at all? With you mentioned with depression and anxiety, that there has been some work in that area. Do you find it useful in those patients? Right, and so so what is important is also patient's preference. And sometimes patients come in and say, "I prefer 
natural remedies and uh, or they have significant side effects from traditional medications. And uh, this would be the best uh, candidates for the use of um, um, cannabinoids and C CBD oil. Uh, so um, I would recommend uh, to consider this as an option, but it really depends on patients' preferences too. Some of them are had uh, prior experience with um, uh, bad experiences marijuana use uh, in younger ages, and they prefer to steer away. Not, okay. Um, another question that came up is actually, and Dr. Kluger, maybe you could answer this. Will marijuana affect the way your other Parkinson's medications work? Like, will it re reduce the effectiveness of your dopamine replacement? You mentioned before about how sometimes it stimulates and sometimes it, um, it, it drives it down in terms of dop dopamine uh, effectiveness. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, uh, so there's uh, not direct drug-drug interactions, uh, at least that have been described so far. I think there, there may be, and I, I can look it up, uh, one antidepressant. There are some anti-epileptic drugs where there are actually drug-cannabis interactions. Um, so, so that mm -hmm. is possible. So, so it would be important, particularly if people are on multiple medications, uh, to try to clear that with a pharmacist. And we do have a pharmacist here in Colorado who we can ask those questions to. Um, mm -hmm. That being said, uh, I think, you know, to echo both uh, Dr. Fox and, and Dr. Lavretsky, is that there are potential adverse effects that may go against the desired effects of other medications. So an example of that would be blood pressure, uh, that some people right. with Parkinson's may have orthostatic hypotension, uh, may even be on medications to try to get their blood pressure up, and, and uh, medical marijuana products have the potential to lower blood pressure. Uh, similarly, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, that some formulations, uh, particularly from dispensaries where it's less regulated, you know, have the potential to slow people down and may even heighten uh, bradykinesia. Um, so it's possible that that the, that the cannabis products could be working at cross purposes uh, to your medication. So it's uh, you know definitely something that you'd want to think out and, and to you know echo myself and Dr. Fox's. You know, general, really recommend starting at low doses, um, going up slowly, and, and making sure that we have a clear goal in mind. I, I think you asked a, a good question, which we don't have a lot of evidence on, is is what are the long-term effects of cannabinoids in, in older adults? And I think, in, in general, the you know we don't have a lot of evidence. But there's you know certainly some evidence, um, which ha has been mentioned in adolescence and for people who've used it in adolescence later, but. You know, for the formulations that are being prescribed today and for people who start using as older adults as opposed to use, using it in adolescence where their brain is still developing, um, I don't think right. we know the answer. So it's a, actually, I think, a really important uh, question and an important area for research that, um, you know, should be tackled. So interesting. This conversation is, <laughs> we could spend all day, I think, talking about it. But uh, let's just move on to the next slide if we can. This is just a brief um, introduction to Fox Insight, if you don't know about it. Fox Insight is an online clinical study where people with and without Parkinson's disease sort of share self-reports on their health, and that wealth of data we hope will tr help transform and guide the search for better treatments. And they will be launching a survey on marijuana use and experience early next year, so your input can be, you know, really important to that study and can help inform future studies. So. Um, the website is on the slide, and if you could register for Fox Insights today, that would be a great idea. 
Let's move on to the next alternative therapy that we're going to talk about, and that's acupuncture. Dr. Lovetsky, for those that have not experienced acupuncture, what exactly is it and how, what does it involve? Acupuncture is a part of um, traditional Chinese medicine, and it's okay. one of the many tools that is being used uh, for symptoms like uh, pain, fatigue, anxiety, insomnia, um, and sometimes movement disorders. Some of the acupuncture studies coming from China have used it for um, neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's with positive outcomes, both cognitive and motor. And, uh, but the primary symptoms typically are um, the pain, um, depression, anxiety, and insomnia. Um, it could be a very uh, powerful uh, technique to add to the traditional treatments. Again, everything okay. in, uh, in uh, integrative medicine depends on uh, personal preferences. There's certainly fear of right. needles is quite prevalent among people, and there right. are modalities that can substitute for acupuncture, like acupressure that doesn't involve the use of needles, or moxibustion right. that is uh, using the same principles but doesn't use needles. Right. Matt, I know you had a, a, a time where you were a little bit wary of the number of needles that acupuncture involves. What was your experience like with acupuncture? So I, shortly after being diagnosed in 2010, somebody sent me an article on a Chinese uh, fellow who had had acupuncture in his family. They were all acupuncture practitioners for the last 300 years. So fortunately, he was very close to where I lived, and I started seeing him. And I was scared to death of needles. I can't even stand to have my blood drawn. So every time they poke a needle in me, now I, I want to emphasize that acupuncture needles are very, very fine needles. They, you hardly know that they've gone in you. Um, but I had a fear of needles. And so, you know, I, I swallowed hard and I went in and I started going to him regularly. That was about once a week. Now, he advocated that I should be going three times a week, but I just couldn't fit it into my work schedule and so forth. And what I found is that I was able to relax, and, and that's hard to imagine when you have 40 needles in your backside, in between your toes, in your, <laughs> in your, in your eyebrows, you know, places like that that just aren't comfortable. But um, mm. what I found is that with the passage of time, I, I would go into the acupuncture, and he, he put 30 or 40 needles in the front side of me, and they'd sit there for 30 minutes or 20 minutes, and then he'd put 30 or 40 needles in the back side of me after I rolled over and um, they'd sit there for 30 minutes and I'll be darned if I wasn't able to fall asleep flat on my back and flat on my stomach, you know, and, and this told me that I was getting relief. Um, and so, you know, there were no side effects, no negative effects other than periodically. And I'd say one out of a thousand needles that he put into me, it, it, it hit something and it felt like electricity going through my body, but it was fine. It, it worked out well. And, and I, embraced it. I sort of graduated from that, um, and, and I don't get acupuncture as often now, but instead mm -hmm. I get deep um, acupressure. And it, okay. and he actually, he had actually done that for patients that were hypersensitive to needles. Um, and that, uh -huh. that works out very well. It's almost like a form of massage the way that they do it. Um, so mm -hmm. that's, I've had a very positive experience and believe that it can bring real relief and again, the thing I want to emphasize is that everybody suffers from something different. You know, I had pain in my shoulder. I had, you know, I had anxiety, and it definitely treated both of those. So. Right. You had a good result. It's good to know. I did.
I think in general, lifestyle modifications are a popular topic for those of us with Parkinson's because there are some variables that we actually do have control over, unlike our diagnosis, to include areas like sleep, exercise, and diet. And with regards to the latter, Dr. Fox, are there any clear guidelines regarding diet as well as vitamins and supplements in, in Parkinson's disease? Right. Uh, this obviously is another very common question that I get asked. Um, I guess the bottom line is is not really um, diet. Um, I usually advise people to take to to eat a well balanced, healthy diet. This helps with the con the uh, digestion. The con re reduces the risk of constipation. Um, the issues of high protein and reducing absorption of levodopa in some patients people with Parkinson's can be very significant. In others, it's not an issue, but it's something I talk to people about, um, perhaps avoiding a lot of protein in the middle of the day and having it at the end of the day, taking your medications mm -hmm. at least 30 minutes before you um, eat. Um, but otherwise, in terms of diet, nothing else specific. Um, supplements, yes, coenzyme Q10 has been studied in Parkinson's disease. There were a few trials that may... There are some possible hints it could have some um, neuroprotective effects at one dose and then higher doses didn't show that. So I think the evidence is a bit inconclusive. However, we do know that the mitochondria, which is where coenzyme Q10 works, are um, impaired. The function of the mitochondria is impaired in Parkinson's. So the rationale is very reasonable to use CoQ10. So if people ask, I say, well, go ahead. It's not there's no side effects. Um, you, you obviously have to buy it, but there's no problem with using it. Um, there have been studies looking at many other supplements, but really the evidence is, is uh, much weaker. I'd add into there vitamin D um, as, a, mm -hmm. as a something that I usually suggest to people because of bone health in Parkinson's is important. There's some evidence mm -hmm. that people with Parkinson's have a higher incidence of osteoporosis, thinning of the bones. Mm -hmm. So having vitamin D is, is a good way of, of reducing um, the risk of osteoporosis and obviously if you fall, the risk of breaking a bone. Right. Yeah, no, that's very helpful. Um, and the next slide, Matt, I noticed, the first thing I noticed is a pick up, picture of what I believe are your boxing shoes. <laughs> and is boxing part of your approach to integrative care in your in your case? Yes, and, and I, I I would have to say it, it was something I learned about when I was still working, but again, life got in the way and I couldn't figure out how to get to the gym, get all sweaty, do boxing, and then go back to work. So I delayed doing it. That was one of the biggest mistakes I've ever made. In retrospect, I've now been boxing 18 months and I started the Monday after I stopped work. I stopped work on a Friday and I started boxing on Monday. I go four to six times a week for an hour and a half each session, and it's it's become a, a, a really important part of my life, and it makes me feel so much better for all the main reasons. And one is it's exercise at the top of the food chain, and it's good exercise. Right. One is it's core strengthening, which helps reduce the incidence of falling and, and tripping and things like that by having co greater core strength. It's muscle-mind-memory right. coordination as you learn how to punch properly and pivot off your foot, step forward with your, with your jab and, and pivot off your right foot with your hook. Um, it's also the, the least talked about benefit of it is it's a natural support group. 
is a bunch mm. of people in a room getting hot and sweaty, talking about what their challenges are, but not talking about it in a negative way like you find in a mm. traditional support group where people sit around the table. So I find that that's a huge benefit, and it's become something I'm very dependent upon. I don't feel well if I if I go a week without boxing or severe exercise, and I find it's hard to get the severe exercise without doing the boxing. So I'm a big mm. proponent, and and I, I I took that picture not realizing. Well, actually, that was that was at another alternative place. This was in the therapy center in Italy that I went to. I, I imagine we'll talk about later. But I love the saying on the wall: "Will it be easy? Nope. Worth it? Absolutely." And so that's my <laughs> encouragement to everybody. Yeah. So do do what you want to do. Have faith and and make it work. And if it doesn't work, move on. That's a great advice, actually. And uh, and that's why, you know, the slide also mentions things like yoga, tai chi, dance, other exercise approaches. Whatever you can um, do consistently and uh, and do well, um, it is of your interest, I think, is, is the most important thing, for sure. Um, let's go on to some questions and answers in the few minutes that we have remaining from our um, listeners. And the first question I have is uh, for Dr. Kluger. And it's um, how do I find a qualified supplier? I think they're talking about medic um, about marijuana at this point, cannabis. Um, yeah, that's a, a, a good question, and I wish I had a good answer. Uh, as of now, at least in Colorado, and I assume it's similar in California, and I should be interested to hear if it's any different in uh, Canada. Uh, but it's not not something that's regulated. Uh, so mm -hmm. certain places may uh, elect to self-regulate, but, um, you know, you just have to take them on their word that they are doing that. Um, you know, so I, I think a, a lot of times, you know, people will, you know, find good dispensaries via word of mouth through support groups, mm -hmm. uh, through mm -hmm. other things. But uh, there's, uh, at least to my knowledge, not a, a great way to, uh, you know, to know that one dispensary is going to have better product than another. Right. Um, I don't know who may be able to answer this, but there's a couple questions on hemp oil and whether or not that has been shown to be effective in any way in Parkinson's disease. Yeah, I, I don't I know anything specific about hemp oil. I'm not aware, but maybe Dr. Kluger knows. Yeah, I was going to say that. So, so hemp, uh, by definition, means that there's less than 0.3% THC. Uh, so hemp oil is essentially CBD. And like everything else we've discussed, there there's really no good research evidence uh, behind it at the current time. Okay. This is an interesting one. Um, maybe either well, either Dr. Fox, Dr. Kruger, or Dr. Levetsky. Is there any benefit for Parkinson's with hyperbaric oxygen therapy? Do any of you have experience with hyperbaric oxygen therapy or know of any studies? Um, uh, there have been studies uh, uh, for a variety of diseases, psychiatric diseases, uh, with some uh -huh. results even for schizophrenia. Um, I'm not aware of any studies specifically for Parkinson's disease, but uh, many people would try anything. Um, and basically, it's, uh, and that, you know, the, the uh, reason to use this is to improve oxygenation of the brain and right. uh, reduce... Um, uh, improve uh, oxygenation and uh, provide antioxidant activity to, to the brain and the blood. Right, but we don't know any um, any studies in Parkinson's particular. I was going to say my my typical advice uh, for, is generally to tell people to avoid it. Uh, 
that there, there really is not any good evidence for it for Parkinson's, for Alzheimer's, for any other neurodegenerative illness. Uh, it tends to be quite expensive. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you know, from in my standpoint, you know, and, and there's also you know reason to believe that it could be harmful. Um, so you could actually increase um, oxida- oxidative stress by increasing oxygen. So, um, so I, my my typical advice is for uh, for people to to avoid it just because it's expensive. There's some potential danger, and there's really no evidence right now of efficacy in a neurodegenerative illness. Good to know, uh, Dr. Fox. Does DBS have any interaction with marijuana? Right. No, no, it won't do. There's, there is no direct interaction between if you've had DBS and you want to try uh, marijuana, then there's no contraindications apart from the same risks are attached to using the cannabis as you would if you didn't have DBS in terms of low blood pressure, sedation, all the other things we talked about. But the having the surgery itself is not a contraindication. Okay. And another quick question for you, Dr. Fox. The dosage of vitamin D we were discussing, what, what dosage would you recommend for patients to take? Well, it's it's there isn't really a sort of a direct uh, answer to that. Um, I mean, I usually advise people to take the um, the usual recommended that's um, when you buy it over the counter, so one to two tablets a day of the 1,000 uh, international unit preparations. Okay. And Dr. Kluger, um, mucuna purin. Yeah. Um, what what's your take on that? Uh, yeah, Mucuna is interesting. Uh, so Mucuna actually was uh, yeah, first described in Ayurvedic medicine, which is the kind of traditional medicine of the, of India, uh, yeah. several thousand years ago, and uh, was used for um, their version of Parkinson's disease. So, and it turns out that Mucuna actually has uh, levodopa in it to a pretty high concentration. So it's interesting that they were using levodopa to treat Parkinson's uh, hundreds of years before we had a diagnosis of Parkinson's and before we started using dopamine in, in the West. Um, right. That being said, that you know, the animal studies are interesting. It looks like there may be less risk of dyskinesia. Uh, there haven't been very many uh, studies in people. And just like marijuana, it's, it's hard to know um, if the source that you're getting is reliable. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that um, a lot of studies suggest that more often than not, when you're buying supplements, that you're uh, buying uh, rice powder and um, houseplant. And in fact, there's a, a mm-hmm. the Attorney General of New York, uh, you know, did an investigation of General Nutrition Center and other uh, suppliers of supplements and found that that was the case. That more often than not, what was on the label was not what was in the product. And so. Uh, even though I, I think it's actually a promising thing, and I wish things were better regulated, it, it's a hard thing to recommend because we don't know if people are getting a reliable product, and we re- really don't know what the correct doses or things like that are. So I have a few patients who use it, and they use it as a supplement to their um, cinnamon, but I, I don't know if it's placebo or if they're getting a real product or or how it's working. Right. So as we wrap things up, I wanted to give each of you an opportunity to answer one final question to sort of one sentence as possible. When it comes to patient exploring complementary alternative therapies, what's the one thing that they should keep in mind, Dr. Fox? I think the safety of the compound you're taking, just because it's natural, doesn't necessarily mean it's safe. Perfect. Dr. Kruger. Um, yeah, I, I would echo that. I, I guess, uh, yeah, when I have conversations with people, it's always kind of a balance as, as the cost. 
uh, worth the potential benefit and, and having an right. open and honest discussion about risk. I, I guess maybe to add to Dr. Fox's would be to, um, as best as you can, uh, make sure your doctors are involved with your decisions. I, I think a lot of people have a tendency to not discuss these things with their physicians, and that could be a mistake because it can be a source of side effects or other symptoms, and the physician right. wouldn't know that and what you were doing. Dr. Zavretsky? Um, I would say if you have to choose among a variety of modalities, choose ones that uh, bring you joy so that it improves your quality of life purpose and resilience uh, to deal with the chronic disease like Parkinson's disease. Excellent. And Matt? So I'm going to be a little more philosophical about it, and I'm less guarded um, because I hear the medical professionals being relatively guarded, and, and I respect that, by the way. What I'm going to say is much along the lines of the last comment, and I'd say pick something that you're interested in and then figure out how to follow it closely and keep a good log. Talk to your doctor, but I found that my doctor, and I have a great doctor, but Western medicine doesn't respect alternatives as much as it probably should be done. And so I'd say try everything, but do it in a very controlled way. Do it judiciously and carefully as been, as has been pointed out. But look at everything. And there are things like we've talked about marijuana. We've talked about acupuncture. I think a regular regimen of massage can be work wonders. It helps me with my tremor. Um, I went to a European therapy center in northern Italy and had tremendous results. And it was dirt cheap. It was $200 a night. And that included therapy and room and board. And it was spectacular. And my final comment on that is that when I returned from this trip to Italy, I realized that the, one of the reasons why it worked so well was that I was completely void of any responsibilities when I was in Europe. Right. I didn't have to worry about where to park a car. I didn't have to worry about the traffic. I didn't have to worry about right. making food, going to the store. Everything was taken care of. It was spectacular. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you for that. And thank you kindly for everyone uh, for joining us today. I hope you you feel your time was well spent and that you found the discussion informative and valuable. I know I did. And a very special thank you to our panelists, Matt and Drs. Fox, Kluger, and Wabreski, for sharing your time and expertise with us today. And remember, everyone, Parkinson's affects all aspects of life and needs to be approached in a variety of ways in order to live well with this disease. And until there is a cure, it's really all about quality of life. So educate yourself, empower yourself to not just live with Parkinson's disease, but thrive despite it. Thank you, everyone. This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org.